valiant against the end, opaque to the observer, intelligible to the intrinsic, durable in the face of time, we together embrace the void. This void quite calming actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 135 of Embrace the Void, where the thread feels thinner every day. I am your host, Aaron, and I'm less clear on how I should feel with each passing day, to be honest. I I wish I had something more substantial to add to the efforts. Um, I do think this chat is a valuable ethical deep dive that's hopefully clarifying or at least distracting. So let's make with the sensations. My guest this week is Jamie Woodhouse, an advocate for the ethical theory of sentientism. Jamie, would you like to say hi to the void? I would. Hello, void. It's uh, great to be here, staring into you. We appreciate you coming on. So I came across your stuff on Twitter, and it seems, and you do some work on Facebook as well on this um, theory of sentientism that we'll discuss in a second. Um, but first, yeah. I thought it'd be nice maybe give folks a little bit of a picture of who you are as an individual. What other isms maybe you attach to your personal identity besides sentientism? Yeah, of course. Um, and maybe a good way into that is to talk about. Uh, I guess how I how I started out as a kid and the way I thought then, and and I was a fairly common case in that I wasn't particularly interested in um, philosophy as a topic originally. I wasn't particularly interested in animal ethics. I wasn't particularly interested in the worlds of religion either. But grew up in a fairly ordinary sort of English context with a backdrop of you know moderate understated christian religion and heritage mm-hmm. um and um that carried through until i guess my teenage years when largely through reading science reading and some you know amateur philosophy and one turning point actually was reading bertrand russell's um history of western philosophy that context just made me think about religion in a very different way and at that point i went through a fairly quick process of abandoning religion and and um, I guess becoming an atheist mm-hmm. and a moderately staunch one too. Um, following on from that, I did start to get interest, interested in morality and you know moral philosophy because atheism doesn't really have much to say about moral philosophy or your, your moral stance. It's you know very simply just an absence of belief in a, a deity or a deity. Mm-hmm. So then I moved on to thinking about humanism and related topics, and those things really really resonated with me, uh, partly because I felt that they were a more positive, constructive way of addressing lots of you know, human discrimination and human problems than than some other approaches. Interesting. Um, and and separately, there was a developing theme of thought around around animal ethics as well. Although for most of my, you know, until I was sort of mid twenties, I deliberately avoided thinking about the topic because I didn't want to face the implications of mm. my uh, my ethics on that front. Right. So in a way, my my thinking about moral philosophy and religion and animal ethics and uh, vegetarianism and veganism were, were somewhat separate and then they've come together in this sentience thing. So I guess some of the other isms are, mm-hmm. I guess I'm an atheist, I do count myself as a humanist, um, I am vegan for ethical reasons, so, so you know that's part of the worldview as well. So hopefully that's... Uh, I think that gives a bit of flavor. Yeah, it's a trajectory that I think a lot of people experience, especially being raised in that kind of background. I'm curious, since you mentioned um, Russell, was it the teapot argument itself that led you to, to doubt... Um, God, or was it? Was there any particular argument that did it for you? There were t- it was broader reading as well, but I think the teapot argument was interesting for me because 
it led me to this view that if your beliefs aren't based on evidence about reality, they are almost by definition arbitrary. You know, mm-hmm. there's a functionally infinite number of things you could choose to believe that have no evidence for them, mm-hmm. including the chocolate teapot that controls the universe from the other side of Jupiter or wherever it was. So, so that was, you know, linking that idea of, um, you know, you either have evidence and reason or you, your beliefs are arbitrary. That, that was important. But I think what got to me more was just understanding the historical context of, mm-hmm. you know, one, understanding lots of different religions and all un- also understanding where they came from and how they developed and what they were doing. And when I looked at, you know, the full swathe of all of the different religions in that context, it, it I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> made it clear to me how, how human they are. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, that totally makes sense. So you mentioned... You went from atheism to humanism, and then it sounds like expanded out to um, sentientism, which that sort of redrawing of the boundary of the moral community is something that I often talk about in my environmental ethics class, the expanding of the moral community. Um, I'm curious, was there something in particular that you came across in terms of reading or experiences that led you to feel that like humanism alone wasn't sort of doing the work? Yeah, so I guess even even... I switched to being vegetarian in my sort of early mid twenties. Um, and again, we're still in denial about dairy and eggs and various other things as well, but let's not get into that. But, but it's still in my mind was reasonably separate from my thinking about human ethics and humanism. So it was only more recently in the last few years that I started to think about the links between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yes, I guess I started to look at humanism, which I see as enormously positive, constructive force for good, um, focusing on our common humanity, you know, commitment to evidence and reason, at least in its modern secular form, mm-hmm. um, and focused on compassion. But it did seem to me that there, you know, we're humanism, or in many ways, draws a somewhat arbitrary boundary around what is it we care about. So that's what led me to the, you know, the idea of sentientism. Um, in the way, it answers the question. It answers the secular humanist question: What should we believe? In the same way, you know, use evidence and reason. Uh, evidence reality and reasoning about that so that mm-hmm. answer to what should we believe is entirely consistent the second important question is what should we uh, grant moral consideration for what should we care about what should we have compassion for and there it did seem to me that humanism stops too short and you know in the moral circle uh, should be expanded further so i i didn't come up with the term sentientism it was really developed by philosophers like richard Ryder and peter singer mm-hmm in the context of the animal advocacy movement. And they made what, you know, what really is its central argument, which is if morality is about good and bad, mm-hmm. um, and in a way you can see good and bad as being measures of suffering or flourishing, however you want to determine those, shouldn't we have moral consideration for anything capable of suffering or flourishing? Those things by definition are sentient. So, so they made that central argument that we should grant moral consideration to anything that's capable of suffering. Um, Mm -hmm. And they did that in quite a naturalistic way, Mm -hmm. but uh, as an alternative to various supernatural and naturalistic ways of thinking. But the naturalism was just in the context of that question, what should we care about? And and so all I've been doing really in the last couple of years in a somewhat amateurish way is to try and recast their version of sentientism as something that applies a naturalistic approach in all respects. So in that way, it takes their concept of sentientism um, and it uses it as a way of expanding humanism Mm -hmm. to be completely naturalistic as a worldview, but to extend humanism's moral compassion to all other sentient things, if that makes sense. So there were a few trigger points, and and one of them was actually a a lecture given by Dr. Diana Fleischman. I don't know if you've come across her, and she'd be a brilliant guest for you to add to your roster. Um, She has the Twitter handle Sentientist, which I'm jealous of. Um, But she gave a lecture actually at the UK Humanists um, uh, Darwin um, Day lecture a couple of years ago um, and, and brought some of these themes together. So that was one of the particular turning points where I thought it might might make sense to get a little bit more serious about the idea. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense, the idea of seeing humanism as a subset of sentientism, and sentientism as an attempt to try to explain um, what has value is a very sort of strong position that I think, like, you know, Singer's arguments in particular about animal liberation are incredibly motivating and compelling, Um, though I, I, I am a little worried that we have 
shifted maybe a little too far uh, in that direction some. So maybe we can try to tease apart some concerns here about um, the view. First of all, I want to sort of tease apart what 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 you know level of um, strength of sentientism are you adopting in this particular view? So there's what I would consider a kind of strong sentientism that says only sentient sentient experiences matter, right? The the experiences of sentient beings are the only things that have value or ends in themselves or matter in any kind of way, or a more like weaker kind of pluralistic view that says sentient experience matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. Which do you feel like you fall yeah. into? So personally, I take a strong view, but, but sentientism itself takes a weaker view, okay. um, if that makes sense. And and I think there'll be a few points in this conversation where I want to make that distinction because... Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I, think, I think sentientism is is most useful and most compelling um, as, a, as a fairly simplistic moral baseline, if you like, rather than trying to address, you know, all of the vagaries and complexities of, of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, all that sentientism says is commit to evidence and reason in choosing what to believe and grant at least some meaningful level of moral consideration to everything that is sentient. Um, so that leaves it leads open the fact that you could, you know, grant moral consideration to other other things that aren't sentient too. Mm -hmm. Personally, I take the strong view. I take a strong view, which is that we don't grant moral consideration to anything that isn't sentient. But non-sentient things can absolutely still be critically important. You know, if you think about um, plants, aspects of the environment, mm -hmm. those can all be critically important things that we need to protect and look after, but only because of their impact on the experiences of sentient beings. So I take a stronger view. Okay. So let me ask you then, since you mentioned you had you had a principle in there where you said that we need to base our beliefs off reason and evidence. Um, mm. I'm curious, yeah, yeah. right, if, if we had a hypothetical where the well-being of sentient entities was benefited most by people not believing certain things based on evidence or not being fully rational in some kinds of ways, would you give the moral priority to the well-being of the sentient entities over the the value of, of truth and, and critical thinking, for example? I, 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 I would. Mm -hmm. um, I, I realize uh, it's an implausible scenario, but I'm just curious if you feel like those things when they come apart. Maybe so, but, but I think ultimately I would, because what, what I'm... What I'm the moral stance is driven by the experiences of the sentient beings. Okay. And I guess if you step backwards, I think that is well-founded in evidence and reason. Mm -hmm. um, but, but morally, maybe the evidence and reason ultimately are, um, you know, subordinate to the importance of the experience of the sentient beings. But I guess there is an implied hypothesis, if you like, that committing to evidence and reason is the best way of, ultimately enhancing the experiences of sentient beings right. and that engaging effectively with what is actually real generally works out better. Yeah. And there's, and there's <laughs> some makes, evidence for that in the world yeah, that we live in question. today, right? Like there's nothing, nothing yeah. wrong with saying that like following the scientific method in medicine has increased quality of life for sentient beings several folds. So that's, that's plausible yeah. to me. Um, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, one potential concern that folks might have with the, uh, what we, what we think of as the hedonistic kind of model that says that all that matters is the mental states of sentient beings is, um, does this run afoul of of intuitions around things like the experience machine, for example? I'm sure, have you talked about that one before? Are you familiar with that one? Um, yes. Yeah, for yeah. folks who aren't, for folks who haven't heard this before, this is um, made famous by Nozick initially, and it's been popularized in a million pieces of science fiction. The idea of a machine where, you know, I could tailor your psychological experiences to be as maximally pleasurable and as minimally painful as possible, however you'd like them tailored, essentially. Um, and then the concern is a lot of folks wouldn't want to go into that machine, even if it did maximize pleasure in that way, because they would feel separated from, um, you know, the real or separated from being able to help other people in a genuine kind of way rather than in a virtual kind yeah. of way. And and Nozick's point was that there's something that matters besides what it feels like for us from the inside. And I'm curious if you're sympathetic at all to that concern. I'm not really, because mm -hmm. I think most people's objections to the experience machine is they don't believe it could be good enough. Um, because I think all of the reasons why they're hesitant about it 
the experience machine was, you know, built intelligently enough and powerfully enough mm-hmm. could address all of those concerns. I agree. And in a sense, and this is, you know, again, this is stepping outside of sentientism, but I don't really see there being any moral difference between the existence of a sentient mind in, you know, what you might call a virtual mm-hmm. environment or one that happens to be biological or in some other sort of substrate. To me, they're, um, you know, they all have moral worth. Yeah, I mean, I agree that, so, if, you know, for well, maybe we shouldn't go too far astray on the thing, but we can come back to the experience machine at the end if we have a little yeah. more time for <laughs> objections because I don't want to pull us too far away. Um, so let me let me bring us back around and ask you this. What do you feel like is the strongest argument in favor of sentientism? Is there a, an argument or do you just feel like it's a very powerful intuition that you're compelled by? Yeah, it's, it's odd in a way. I do feel it's powerful and intuitive and and awkwardly can almost seem tautological in some senses. Mm-hmm. So if we take the two pieces separately, the naturalistic point of view being, you know, believe in things for which there is evidence and based on reason, I'm just not sure there's an alternative that makes any intellectual sense at all. Because if you're not basing your beliefs on evidence and reason, by definition, they are somewhat arbitrary and disconnected to reality. So I guess that's why I find it so compelling. I just don't see that there is an alternative to um, assessing your beliefs against um, re- real stuff. So you, um, you so cite you, evidence, you keep, yeah, you keep bringing up evidence and reason, which I think is an interesting thing to cite here because it seems like sentientism is, has a harder time than certain other views on this front. I can't prove that I'm sentient. I can't prove that anything is sentient. Uh, it doesn't seem like yeah. science has a good way of testing um, sentience. And, and furthermore, right, how would we answer the question from using experience and reason to say, well, sure, I care about my own pleasure and pain, but why should I care at all about anyone else's experiences, even if I do know they're sentient? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's two parts to that. And one is, I think, easier and the second is harder. Uh, one is the more tautological point is it almost comes from a definition of morality in its own right in that um, – if morality is anything, it's about assessing whether decisions, actions are good or bad. Mm-hmm. To my mind, that leads you directly towards uh, a judgment about the qualitative experiences of of sentient beings, because almost the definition of something bad or being good is linked into um, that subjective experience that some sentient being experiences so it's almost because morality is about suffering and flourishing therefore it makes sense to consider yeah anything capable of those two things so so that that that's one side of it the other side it you know is more is more challenging because the nature of that subjective experience is is you know very complex and, and sometimes hard to grapple with but i do think it's best addressed through in a way, a scientific approach or an also an introspective approach of of thinking about what sentience and more broadly consciousness um, uh, are. Mm -hmm. Um, And to my mind, sentience and consciousness actually are both really just classes of information processing. Um, They are advanced, they're massively complex, they're extremely hard to understand, but I don't see any reason to believe there's anything mystical or anything otherworldly there i see them as being very complex rich intricate valuable patterns in data and energy mm-hmm. uh, so i still think that we you know we don't have a complete understanding of sentience but i do think that using evidence and reason is the best way to approach that and and we are doing that now um, and you look at fields of neurology and animal biology and human biology you look at the fields of mindfulness and meditation and people studying their own consciousness and um, sentience directly. Um, you can look at uh, inferences from biology or from architecture. You look at the fields of artificial intelligence. All of those different areas are approaching the subject, and and I think over time we'll develop a better uh, and richer understanding of it. So, yeah, okay, so there's, there's a lot of rabbit holes around where, where you just dance through, which I yeah. think is, like, totally fine, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? Like, um, and I want to – I'll – I'll say I agree with a fair bit of what you're saying there. The part that I'm mm-hmm. sort of most keen to push back on a little bit, and this is coming directly from Singer, so I'm not like pushing back on you so much as Singer in this, where he does 
basically say that for an entity to have interests, for there, be, for there to be something it's like for the things to go well for that entity, it has to be a mm. sentient being, right? There has to be good or bad experiences for that entity. And I'm, I'm not sure if he has officially walked that back, but I think I think that's, that's wrong. And it's something I used to believe for a long time, but I think mm. I'm now much more sympathetic to the view that there are entities that can flourish or fail to flourish whether or not they are sentient and i'm thinking primarily you know the easy case would be plants i think um you know there's good reason to think that plants are not sentient in the way that we are sentient but there's also good reason to think that they flourish in the similar way to the way that we flourish so i'm curious how you would um parse those kinds of hard cases yeah I'd, i'd still draw a fairly firm firm line there some other sentientists wouldn't but I, I think i would because i think they those things you know plants are a great example they can flourish they can be you know you can damage them you can kill them they are alive but i don't think they experience any of those things happening so while you could cut down a tree or you could slice a carrot mm-hmm. that does harm it it does you know bring its life to an end um, it stops it flourishing but there's nothing that's actually experiencing that in a qualitatively negative way. So I don't directly accord moral consideration to that. So you would say, right, if there was a tree that I could cut down and it would cause no harm to any sentient beings to do so, and it wouldn't cause me any pleasure, it would be just a thing that I did, would you say that it's um, neither good nor bad, that it's a neutral act? I would, yeah. And it feels odd to say that because intuitively we we build in lots of assumptions about why it might be bad. You know, it looks, it looks nice. It gives pleasure to people, you know, there are knock on impacts. But as you say, if, if there are no knock on impacts to a sentient being, if there is nothing to experience, if it, if it brings no pleasure or pain to anybody, it's morally neutral. So another way of answering that would be, you know, if you imagine a distant planet and a distant galaxy Mm -hmm. that is covered with plants and rocks and rivers and is aesthetically deeply beautiful but has never been seen, will never be seen, n- nothing sentient will ever experience it in any way. To me, that is just morally irrelevant. It's just, yeah, I bring this in, this, this, is a, this is an example to me where I feel like there's not a lot to be said beyond the expression of our differing intuitions. So I, I don't <laughs> yeah, have like yeah. a knockdown argument here, but I bring this up in my environmental ethics class a lot. And I say, you know, what would it be morally acceptable with your pristine planet scenario if I opened a portal and dumped a bunch of toxic waste there because no one's ever yeah. going to be negatively impacted by it? And it seems to me that it's just fundamentally wrong to do something like yeah. that. Um, and that, that, that leads me into views about sort of the intrinsic value of non-sentient entities in a way that it sounds like you're somewhat resistant to at least yeah i i am mm-hmm. and and again i but it, and it is a fundamental difference but in practical terms in the real world there's an enormous overlap between those two different views because n- most of the sentientist people and i include myself in in this are deeply concerned environmentalists because they see the impact the wider environment has on sentient animals and sentient humans mm-hmm. so but the, the difference is we don't care about the plants because the plant can suffer. We care about the plants and the rivers and the lakes and the mountain and the ecosystem because of the awful effects it can have on things that can actually experience suffering. So there's a massive overlap in positive environmental you know, motivation from sentientists, yeah. but the motivation is you know, slightly different. It's slightly different tuning. And part of the reason I, I think it's, it can be important is that you do sometimes see some environmentalists focused so strongly on the moral value of things that aren't sentient Mm -hmm. they are willing to sacrifice sentient beings in those interests and that it's fairly rare but when you (laughs) when you come across some of the more extreme environmentalists who think humans are a plague on the planet and should be wiped out yeah like the person you're talking to they've gone too far so so most of the time i have a very strong rich overlap with environmental concerns Mm -hmm. but i do think on the margins, it can lead you to, you know, some some problems. Yeah, well, this is a really fascinating problem in environmental ethics. Should we, you know, capitulate to human um, egocentrism and make all of our mm. ethical arguments based around anthropocentric or, you know, if, if we're being a little broader, sentiocentric concerns rather yeah. than mm. arguing that, 
you know, the the Grand Canyon is valuable as a thing in itself, or the redwood forests are valuable as an end in themselves and not as a means to the ends of sentient beings. Um, yeah. Especially because, yeah, there are situations where the well-being of sentient entities and the well-being of non-sentient entities do essentially conflict. And I'm yeah, not yeah. I'm not 100% convinced it should always go to the sentient entity. I really do think that there are that there are situations where that produces a really bad result by by over fixating on the well-being of sentient um, individuals. Uh, but I, you know, again, I think we can we can talk about cases, and I'm sympathetic to both sides of it. So I just want to help people know that there is this really fascinating, and it's both a practical and a theoretical debate, right? It's a practical debate about what will convince more humans to do the right thing, and a theoretical debate about what really is the source of meaning. So let me ask you another sense in which I'm curious how strong your sentientism runs. Um, you've you sort of said it in terms of the strength of it being the only source of value now i'm also curious do you feel that we have an obligation to treat all sentient beings equally or can we give more value to certain sentient beings over others so this is one area where i, I take a weaker approach and mm -hmm. some sentientists take a stronger approach so so the baseline for sentientism just says you have to have some moral sorry some meaningful moral consideration for all sentience but it doesn't stipulate that has to be equal uh, so some sentientists would say any sentient being should be given equal moral consideration. You know, who are we to judge the suffering of a, a chicken or a pig or a cow or uh, something else, you know, and, and say that's less valuable than human experience. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I would take a weaker view. And I think if you look at the evidence from the different fields I mentioned before, I think there's a dizzying array of possible types of sentient experience. I think you could stretch it across not just one dimension, but maybe different dimensions or even different types of sentient experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite open to the idea that uh, some types of sentient being might have a richer or more, more valuable sentience that would warrant giving differential moral consideration where there, where there are challenges and trade-offs. Okay. So, you know, in the classic, classic, you know, if I had to save a chicken or a human and I could only save one, you know, my choice would be pretty clear. So how does that then not, kind of allow this to collapse back into anthropocentrism or or ratiocentrism or something like that, right? If we start, like, what kind of criteria could we present for distinguishing the higher and lower forms of, like, how do we know that a pig's life yeah. is not as pleasurable and as rich as ours, and so we shouldn't take its life or make it, make it suffer for our benefit, but it's okay to do it for insects or something like that? Yeah, it, and it is difficult, and there is a risk of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the reason I like the idea of sentientism rather than humanism is because it's trying to become less anthropocentric because sentience existed long before humans did, and arguably, you know, morality and rationality did too. So it's trying to step away from that human-centric point of view. But there is a risk, as you say, if you allow that grading that you, you, you're drawn back in. Mm -hmm. And I think... What, what I'd go back to is that the baseline sentientism says is you have to have at least some meaningful level of moral consideration for every sentient. So um, mm -hmm. you can say, okay, what does that mean? But it would, for me, that would mean you would need a, a, a clear overriding justification to cause harm or, or death to that, that being. Okay. Otherwise it's not a meaningful moral consideration. So in practical terms, and you know, there are all sorts of practical ramifications for sentientism but i think something very like veganism is a is a clear implication of holding a sentientist view because if you off if you do grant moral meaningful moral consideration to everything sentient um you know killing it to eat it doesn't seem like that's a sufficient justification to override that consideration if that makes sense mm -hmm. so i think there is a baseline that you'd set for you know, a meaningful level of moral consideration for anything that would mean you'd, you'd, you wouldn't want to harm it. You'd see harming it as a moral negative to be avoided. Okay, that's certainly plausible. So then I wonder, could there be, so you said that, you know, the one chicken versus the one human example, you'd go with the human. Yeah. You know, what if we're talking about like a whole colony of, of octopi, for example, right? Like Octopolis itself. If, are there enough non-human sentient beings where you would feel like you would be willing to sacrifice some number of humans for the non-sentient uh, non-humans, for the sentient non-humans, excuse me. And, and 
I think there's another there's another space where sentientism frankly cops out mm-hmm. of, of of how do you make those sorts of trade offs because um, I think you could view that in a number of different ways. Um, conceptually, you could imagine uh, that calculus making sense. You know, if you, you follow a more utilitarian path, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, you run the calculus, you put the numbers in the spreadsheet, you work out what the human to octopus moral consideration ratio is, and it gives you the answer. I, I said um, octopus is other... very high, by the way, just so you're aware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, that, but, but then there are other approaches that you could still take that would be sentientist that might follow virtue ethics or deontological rules or still be compliant with sentientism that might lead you to, to a different conclusion. So I think conceptually you could take those trade-offs. There is there is a sort of implication that sentientism is by its nature you know, more consequentialist or more utilitarian. I, I don't think that's the case. And I do know some sentientists who um, you know, take a different ethical approach when making those trade-offs. So you generally take a pretty weak view on the impartiality side of things, right? You think sentience is what matters, but you're happy to distinguish between levels of sentience and be maybe maybe some would argue, you know, like other kinds of sentience would argue that you are a little bit speciesistic, perhaps, in your assessment of the value of different <laughs> sentiences. They they would certainly. So some so um some some. Uh, other sentientists would say I'm mm-hmm. in a way being speciesist. Um, and I do see speciesism as a, as a, as a serious problem, particularly when it draws a hard dividing line between humans and everything else, uh-huh. um, or even between different types of non-human animals. If you look at, you know, how we treat companion and pet animals compared to farmed animals, there's, um, you know, a stark distinction there, but I guess my counter would be, I'm not judging moral consideration based on species. I'm judging it based on, hopefully a scientific understanding of degrees of sentience, which clearly correlates with species. Um, and and to be and and also even for those minimally sentient preachers, um, I'm still granting them some meaningful level of moral consideration, whereas many speciesists would effectively grant them zero moral consideration because those things aren't human or aren't a species that they they morally care about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I am personally, I'm open to that criticism. Mm-hmm. I think you're better than Kant on that at least. So, um, uh, <laughs> but so yeah, so let's talk about practically, right? How does this play out in our real world? Let's take an example of, so you said you're a vegan. So I, I'm guessing that you feel like, so so let's put, um, you know, the, the philosopher King Crown on you for a second. You have the wand. You can, you can do as you wish with the universe. Um, what would you want to see happen to all of the currently existing farm animals or or animals that are being used for all sorts of food purposes uh would you want them to disappear would you want them to live out the rest of their natural lives how would you want to see the world move forward if you had control so there's there's a real danger of sounding breathtakingly naive here but i'm gonna go that's why i put that crown on Um, you it's okay these are we're talking optimal here (laughs) um so one, we would stop forcibly breeding um, the well over 100 billion uh, land animals we, we breed every year. Most of that is done through uh, humans forcing breeding, uh, fairly unpleasant breeding processes as well. So we'd stop that. So at least we'd stop making the problem bigger. Um, ideally, we would convert those um, farms essentially to sanctuaries that would allow those animals to live out their natural lives. And over time, the numbers of populations would come down and down and down. Um, and we could transition most of that land, or in fact, we don't need to transition about a third of that land to arable farming to replace the calorific output. And we could rewild or reforest or do other useful things with the rest of it. Okay. So it would be a long transition, but that would with my king hat on uh-huh. it would be something along those lines. so as your vizier right your science vizier if i were to come to you and say well look yeah. there's a lot of really really sentient humans out there who really enjoy eating meat and we've got scientists who come up with another alternative they're going to create entities that are just like the animals we currently have but they're not sentient we figured out a way to switch off their sentience would you be okay with yeah, the breeding of non-sentient animals in that way I would, yeah. So, if, you know, if you could imagine a, a brainless pig that, you know, we were absolutely confident could not experience anything at all, I'd have mo- no moral objection to farming them for food. Um, would you feel bad about taking think, sentience away from a sentient being in that way, sort of downshifting them? But I don't think you'd be, you wouldn't be taking it from okay. any individual being. Uh-huh. Um, 
So you would just be creating new beings that happen not to be sentient. Right. So I wouldn't have a moral objection to it. I think many people would still object just because of the, you know, disgust emotions and the, because of the association with very similar animals that, um, that are sentient, but I'd have no moral issue with that. And actually what, what I think we're more likely to see and is already starting to happen is the development of cultured or clean meat where we're actually using mm-hmm. you know, processes very like brewing to create, um, it really is meat. It's, you know, it's, it's indistinguishable from meat, except it doesn't have, um, you know, it's cleaner, it's normally healthier, and it doesn't have the moral implications of, of causing suffering and death. Um, so I've got no 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 issue with um, uh, those types of de- developments at all. And ultimately, they're probably more likely to reduce animal suffering than, um, you know, a, a large number of individuals deliberately going vegan. Ideally, we want people who like meat to become vegan without realizing that it's happened to them, mm-hmm. uh, as well as people taking better ethical choices. Fair enough. Um, another group of entities that Singer is particularly concerned about in his sentientism is the animals that are being used for animal testing of various sorts, for drug testing. Yeah. Um, now, you have a weaker impartiality view than he does, so I'm curious, are you equally concerned about sort of essentially ending um, unjust animal testing, or are you fine with testing on animals because it will benefit more sentient beings with the outcomes? So generally, I'm against it because I think in most cases it just isn't warranted. There are, um, you know, other alternatives that can work just as well, or the benefits don't don't outweigh it. I, I do think it's uh, a tougher argument than animal farming because mm-hmm. arguably you, know, you can see that there's a more meaningful benefit than just a transient taste experience. But generally, I think you know I'm less specialist in that area, um, so I'm open to counter arguments. But I still generally you know I'm against animal testing as well. I think most of the animal testing that goes on seems to be driven because that's just a traditional way of doing things rather than because it's ethically the, the most balanced or even scientifically the most efficacious way of going about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there are some situations where there probably are genuine trade-offs or needs. But So I'm curious, <laughs> let's get a little science fiction-y here, um, but you've already got the king hat on, so we're, we're already here. Yeah. You know, you're okay with sort of changing animals so that they're not sentient though you're not saying it's not the best option it's, it's a fine option would you be f- would you also be okay with changing humans so that their tastes were different like if you could breed humans in such a way where they didn't enjoy the taste of, of sentient beings and much preferred the taste of plants and non-sentient things would that be on on, on, on uh, would that be fine for you ethically <laughs> I, I think i think i would i mean as long as as long as you know, what you're doing for the humans is giving them a new source of pleasure to compensate with whatever they might be losing. I wouldn't necessarily have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like to get, does, I like to get all my put... guests on the record as being pro-eugenics, just a casual <laughs> project of mine. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> I will shut all my accounts immediately. But it, but, it, but it does link into some interesting, you know, another, another allied space is, um, you know, that of transhumanism. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think we should think in a restrictive way about the quality of current human sentience. I don't see why we can't look forward to, you know, radically enhanced styles or types of sentience too. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, that maybe that could be one that they'd really enjoy the, the cauliflower, the cauliflower bake uh, in, a, in a deeply intense way. Maybe that would help. Okay. So while we're, while we're just turning this episode straight up into a philosophers in space episode, let me also ask you about AI. I'm curious, do you think AI can be sentient? Do you think that we'll ever have a good test for proving that an AI is sentient and should we ever give it moral rights as a result? Yeah. So uh, in principle, I don't see any reason why we couldn't have sentience or consciousness running on a different substrate okay. because I, I do, you know, I've, I've seen nothing that suggests that they're not just advanced classes of information processing that, you know, to my mind could run on something else. Now, I think it's, they're breathtakingly complex. You know, we've managed to completely scan the, uh, you know, the, the connectome of a couple of species so far with, you know, 400 neurons, and you can see the entire connections. But even with those very simple organisms, we don't understand the actual patterns of firing that go on those things drive the actual behavior. It's not enough just to understand the, you know, the matter. You need to understand the energy and the patterns. So it's massively complex. So in principle, I don't see there's a there's a there's a reason why 
uh, an artificial intelligence couldn't be sentient. I think it's massively complex, very rich and, and very difficult. Mm -hmm. But if we are able to uh, create artificial intelligences that demonstrate some sort of sentience, um, I think we should grant them moral consideration. Absolutely. What would the demonstration um, look told, like to you? Sorry? I mean, I'm curious what test you would you would try to rely well, I think on. We, yeah. Like you say, it's difficult. You know, you can go back to the sort of what is it like to be a bat mm -hmm. perspective in that it's hard to directly imagine us uh, experiencing what somebody else is experiencing, although even technically I don't see why there's a barrier to that one day. Um, but I think we'd... You know, we probably assess it in similar ways that we do when thinking about other humans or other animals. You you'd infer from behavior, uh, you'd infer from inspection, from examining architecture, from looking at responses. And I don't think you'd necessarily have a, uh, you know, 100% cast iron view, but at least you'd have some level of confidence that there was something going on there that was capable yeah. of experiencing suffering. So, so this is where it, it seems to me, yeah, this is where it seems to me that sentientism has, has real problems because um, since mm. you brought up what it's like to be a bat, right? I think um, this is what I talk about in my AI ethics class. There's a, a categorical difference between any organi organism that has evolved to have sentience and these artificial entities that we are constructing that may or may not have sentience. So the reason that I think that a bat has consciousness or has sentience is because I think that it, it, it evolved its body, its behaviors in roughly the same way that I did. And if that system yeah. gave me sentience, then it probably gave the bat sentience too. That's why I believe you have yes. sentience, et cetera, right? But we don't have that bridging assumption with artificial entities. They did not evolve biologically. They do not have the kinds of constraints that, that led to the generation of sentience in our ancestors, probably as an adaptive yeah. way to do shorthand calculations or, or to deal with a lot of complex information. They don't need sentience for that. So it seems to me that I we're- totally agree. Yeah, so it seems to me that we're, there, we're stuck never being able to really make the jump to um, inferring that they are sentient in the way that we can make that jump with other animals. What do you, what do you think about that problem? So, so I totally agree with everything apart from your last statement. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 you know, artificial intelligence is, you could argue they're part of our extended phenotype and that, you know, everything around us that we do is, is an expression of our own genes in a, in a weird sense. Um, but they haven't directly been, um, uh, responding to evolutionary pressures in their own way. So maybe there's no, um, and you could absolutely envisage artificial intelligences that never become sentient because we don't design them that way. And in the future, they don't design themselves to become that way. Mm -hmm. uh, once we get to a certain point, they'll be doing more of the creation of the next generations than we will. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I completely agree with that point. What I don't see, though, is the evolution has created a physical structure like a bat or a human that is then capable of sentience i don't see why we couldn't recreate a structure that has similar characteristics we might choose not to it might not happen but i don't see in principle why we shouldn't be able to recreate something that evolution has created in terms of the way it processes the information oh, i'm not saying we can't create it i'm saying we can't test for it is what it seems to me like that we can't that we can't know that the thing that we've created is sufficiently similar to the thing that evolution created to to give us good confidence yeah. that it's running the same kinds of sentient processes. I see what you mean. So you're saying so you're saying that part of our confidence in the sentience of other biological things is because we know they evolved and we wouldn't have that factor in assessing or we'd know that factor was zero in assessing an artificial intelligence. And I guess I'd say that's fair enough. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have that piece of evidence, but I think we'd have other pieces of evidence that for me are more meaningful than, than evolutionary history. And that is the behavior and the inference and the, yeah. And uh, I think, architecture and, um, and, and because, yeah. because I think no in principle that it's possible for us to recreate that information processing that's sentient, we should be careful about, saying there's a zero probability of an AI being sentient just because it's not biologically evolved. Because oh, yeah. I think totally we know in principle, there. it's possible. So it might shift the probabilities and our confidence levels might never be quite as high, but I still think they'd probably, in principle, be high enough to accord moral consideration to. So, yeah. You know, if we ever get there, if we ever get there. I mean, here's what it seems like this will happen on your view, which I do think is, generally speaking, going to be the dominant view about how this plays out, is we will build AIs that are 
very human-like and and behaviorally yeah. very similar to ourselves. And once they're sufficiently complex enough, we will just start to treat them like they are sentient without any real testing about whether or not that's the case. We'll just, we'll slip into it yeah. and that'll be the end of it. I think you're right. In the same way as we don't explicitly think, um, you know, about the sentience of, you know, other animals or mm-hmm. or other humans. It's like you said, it's a sort of just a, an automatic thing that we start to assume and we behave that way. And I think another, you know, maybe silly to say, but another reason I prefer sentientism over humanism is I think I can imagine us having a conversation with these future AI overlords mm-hmm. and um, desperately trying to persuade them to adopt ethical systems that will because we we uh, failed at the alignment problem on the front end yeah Uh exactly and i just don't think if we try and persuade them to be humanists i'm not sure they'll they'll buy into Mm. it because we've built our species name into the name whereas if we say look we've got this thing called sentientism which accords moral consideration to all sentient things you know you're sentient animals are sentient humans are sentient please don't kill us you know maybe that's a better target for the ai alignment uh, challenge as well so i think that's, I think that's <laughs> we right. might struggle to sell humanism to them so yeah and i think that's plausible though i'm curious let, let's talk about what we might also sell to them right why not why not convince them um that biocentrism is a better view for them to adopt Do we want them to care about all life or is there an argument that you think that we, we, could, yeah. we could but again when you're trying to sell that story to something that isn't biological <laughs> i'm not sure that well i guess i guess biocentrism <laughs> is not the nicest Pre- uh, prefix but the the meaning would be living entities and one would assume that they would be yeah. counted amongst the living at that point um obviously definitions uh, of living yeah. are tricky but i think um they would be sufficiently um self-organizing and goal-directed that we would consider them to be as living as us if, if just in a different substrate um so yeah so let me just put that in broad terms then what's your what's your <laughs> argument for why we stop drawing stop expanding the circle at sentience rather than than at life i think because as soon as you go beyond that circle there is no suffering and there is no flourishing there's no experience mm-hmm. of anything okay therefore no moral value fair enough so so one other kind of value that might come up what if i have an entity that comes along that we can tell for sure somehow uh is not sentient right we're able to it fails the turing test or something in a big way but it is autonomous it's genuinely mm. goal directed. It has, you know, rational thought. It can assent to um, ends and not in a Kantian kind of way. Should we accord that entity any sort of independent moral consideration? I would, I guess the strict answer would be to say no. Um, Again, the caveat is something of that complexity and richness is likely to have second order or third order benefits or impacts on Mm -hmm. the sentient things around it, which would hold you back from wanting to damage it arbitrarily. Um, And I guess as as that behavior gets richer and richer, you start to question your confidence in whether or not it is sentient. And that brings us back to the earlier conversation about, you know, (laughs) how much of that would you have to see before, before you start to, you start to, you know, question the degree of sentience. You know, there's a spectrum from, you know, here's a thermostat, it's goal-directed, mm-hmm. you know, it responds to the environment, you know, pretty confident there's nothing in there that's doing information processing that looks like sentience. But as you say, you can test that and extend, you know, uh, the richness of behavior and the goal-directedness and uh, uh, how far can you take that before you start uh, uh-huh implying that some sort of form of sentience there i don't really have a i don't really have a strong answer yeah well, and this is another part where, where things get tricky right because you're in some ways it seems like you're relying on kind of a daniel dennett um intentional systems theory kind of approach where if a being acts as if it's sentient that's all there is to determining if something um is sentient or not but you are sort of cashing out sentience in terms of this kind of information processing model but sort of in the literature, Dennett's view has progressed into Keith Frankish, friend of the show, Keith Frankish's view about illusionism, which to varying degrees, depending on who you're talking to and when you're talking to them, um, seems to reject the existence of phenomenal consciousness. So yeah, yeah. on your view, right, like I, I, I worry that like you're, you're relying on the existence of these phenomenal states that have um, natural evaluative um, significance and valence to them while also using a view that sort of denies the existence of any such thing and i and I, the, the way i try and split that is mm-hmm. 
in a way, I'm with the illusionists and I don't think there's anything outside of energy and matter and, and patterns. I don't think there's a separate thing that is phenomenal consciousness. But I think phenomenal consciousness just is a particular pattern of energy and matter that is a class of information processing. So, so in a way, I, to my mind, and I, I'm probably putting Keith's view wrongly, but I'm not sure the illusionists are saying consciousness does not exist. I think they might just be saying consciousness is just a characteristic of a particular class of information processing that happens in a physical universe. Does that, if that makes sense. But again, I'm bumping up against my amateur philosophy here. No, you're doing great. And, and like, um, I I love Keith and I, I think that there's equivocation within that view sometimes. So I think sometimes they're taking a more strong illusionist claim that genuinely there's no phenomenal consciousness. And then other times they're taking a more weak illusionist claim that it's just, it exists, but it's not like the way we think it is. Um, but I had, a, I had a slightly cheeky conversation with Philip Goff on the sort of related yeah. topic of pan really, where, where I suggested an alternative called PowerPointism, mm-hmm. where I said, we all know PowerPoint exists. You, you know, you can use it, you can align, you can group things, and you can move things around the screen. But when you examine the bits and bytes in your computer and the lines of code, you can't find anything that is essentially PowerPoint in the in the construct that sits underneath it. So therefore, you might posit PowerPoint as being something that is has an essential essence of um, in, embedded in every single one of those bits and bytes and maybe in the fabric of the universe itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, I'm being a little cheeky there because I know that's not exactly how panpsychists think, but it does. it feels similar to me. It feels that mm-hmm. because consciousness, you know, it feels and it is very weird and special, Many people think, well, it just it can't just be physics, surely. And they start positing something that, to me, starts to feel a little mystical. And frankly, there's no evidence for that. So um, I, that's how I square that circle. I do see consciousness and sentience within it really is just a, a particular class of information processing that is completely grounded in a naturalistic understanding. I just I, – I, I'm sympathetic and it's also funny to me. Um, folks who are defensive of panpsychism, don't worry. We're going to have um, Emery on the show down the line here a little bit to discuss panpsychism more, and we've done all episodes on it. So, But I'm not, I'm not surprised that you're not super keen – on yeah, I do apologize for the PowerPointism term, but <laughs> no, I mean, well, look, here's the funny thing, right? Illusionism gets totally ridiculed, and people are abusive towards it. Yeah. Panpsychism gets totally ridiculed, and people are abusive towards it. And what's funny to me is the view you're espousing. 40, 50 years ago, the behaviorists who you're kind of depending on in your th- in your view viewed sentience as weird and mystical and not something that should be involved in science. So what you're calling a very naturalistic model is like been a naturalistic model for 10 minutes in a sense, right? Like you just got invited to the the natural sciences community (laughs) in a sense. So I guess I wonder if there should be a little bit more like humility about um, the the wielding of the concept of naturalism, which I find to often be a kind of problematic distinction. Yeah, maybe so, maybe so. <laughs> but I mean, humility, you know, humility is useful all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sympathetic to everyone in the philosophy of mind community. You all have terrible views, including myself. So, um, <laughs> you know, we're all exactly. We have that at least. Right. And and I think the important thing, and this is a danger, you know, we've, when you take a sort of scientific or a naturalistic worldview, is you can sound a bit unforgiving and a bit harsh. Mm-hmm. And and I think. What's essential to the scientific world is you need to be open-minded, right? We've continuously been surprised by finding new things out. Evidence changes, you know, uh, particular perspectives, we reason new things out, right? So we should be completely open-minded and shouldn't be dogmatic. But at the same time, you know, I I do want to actually see some evidence for something before I choose to believe in it. But in the meantime, yeah, let's be open-minded. Who knows? Much to learn. Is there any piece of evidence that could convince you that animals aren't actually sentient? Is there anything that could roll back in you the the premise that um, all of these beings have some kind of sentience? Um, if we, I guess, if we, if neurobiology and humans advance to such a state that you could isolate parts of the mind and the nervous system mm-hmm. that exclusively operated when we we're con- conscious, didn't operate when we weren't, and and you could just really zero into exactly how human sentience operated physically and then you could demonstrate that there was no parallel architecture in a 
an animal that could conceivably do the same thing, then I guess you'd you'd, you'd sway me, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, but everything I understand about you know animal biology and neurobiology so far seems to be going in a different direction, which is that the more we understand about the way animals think, the more we understand that there are you know remarkable parallels. So, and there's a lot of work still to be done around invertebrates and some of the you know the simpler animals. But um, yeah, I, but that would be one of the evidence that would sway me. I'm definitely not a scientist, but like so, for example, there's some talk of um, p neurons as being related to whether beings can experience pain. Um, do you feel like so? You know. Some argue that sentience goes all the way down to, like, the bacterial level. That as soon as you have something that's complex enough in its behavior that it can move around its environment in a somewhat goal-directed behavior, you've got sentience. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that that level of sentience matters much at all um, as compared to, you know, things that can really genuinely feel pain in what we think of as the conscious kind of way? I don't. I mean, I think those people are saying that those very simple things are doing information processing. And I do think sentience is a type of information processing, but I don't think all information processing is sentient in that running PowerPoint on my laptop is, you know, uh, running information processing, but it's not sentient. I do think that it's a particular class of information processing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, and we might struggle to find a lower boundary, but I think, you know, there is at least some fuzzy boundary there where you can say, you know, or everything in a sense, even, Atoms are doing information processing in in some context as they mm-hmm. carry out the, you know, the the laws of physics and go about their go about their world. But there's no transfer or processing of information there with, that would lead us to think of them as being sentient in any way, and that there's any you know, subjective experience going on. So I guess that's a long answer to saying, yeah. you know, sentience is information processing, but it's only a subclass of it, and it's quite a specialized. I know. This, I'm resisting the urge to ask you how you know for sure that your PowerPoint isn't sentient. Um, but since we are getting <laughs> well, a little short, again, it's it's probabilistic. Right? right. I have a lot of respect for PowerPoint, and um, uh, <laughs> but I assign it a low probability at the moment. I'm just saying, when again, the PowerPoint becomes sentient and takes over the world, you're going to feel really bad about having said these things. Um, Absolutely, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. My card is marked already. Yep. But in real, in real terms, right? You can look. You can. In the same way as you can scan the brain of a, a bat, you can look through the code of PowerPoint and work out what it's all doing. And I don't think there's any subroutines in there that are doing the sort of mm-hmm. um, processing we'd expect that would um, would be sent. I agree with you on, on simpler. No, I, don't, I totally agree with you on simpler code, right? It gets much harder when you have, you know, advanced machine learning black box kinds of systems. But certainly for the PowerPoint that you and I are running, it's probably not sentient. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. We might need an upgrade. Yeah. So I think you've answered these questions very well. And I want to leave a little time here at the end for the lightning round, of course. But I want to give you a chance if there's any to back down to earth sort of suggestions you want to give for folks who are interested. And I'll, I'll after the lightning round, I'll let you sort of plug everything, but um, final advice for people who are curious about sentientism. Yeah, great. Um, I guess the other thing that would be interesting to touch on, um, uh, I know we're, we're out of time, is the, is the contrast between sentientism and humanism, not just about, mm-hmm. um, you know, what do you give grant moral consideration to, but also the approach to, wider worldviews and religion and uh, and so on and so forth as well. So there's a whole other field of, you know, the sentientist approach to religion and religious ethics hmm. that might be interesting to dig into another time too. But if people are interested, um, the easiest things to look at, we I do have a very basic web page set up with some of the links on, which is just sentientism.info, I-N-F-O. Uh, sentientism is S-E-N-T-I-E-N-T-I-S-M. Um, you can follow the Sentientism Twitter account at Sentientism or my personal one, which is at Jamie Woodhouse. Um, but if you search for the term Sentientism on Facebook, that's our main community. We're trying to amateurishly build a bit of a community and movement um, around the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you search for the group on Facebook, you'll find it there. But we also have a subreddit, subreddit and Instagram and various other accounts too. Um, and I'm, I am really keen for people to get in touch and, and, and get involved and learn a little bit more about it to see um, if it rings any bells for them um, because it's bringing people who are serious about animal advocacy and veganism and then introducing them to a more rationalist, naturalistic, humanist worldview. It's bringing humanists and atheists in and helping them understand about the imperatives of animal ethics and advocacy. So it's a really interesting mix of people we've got I think 59 different countries involved so mm-hmm. far, activists and um, 
policy makers and writers and philosophers, but mostly just interested lay people like me. So yeah, if you just search for the term on any of those platforms or reach out to me on Twitter, I'd love to hear feedback. And since you just mentioned it, just a quick question I have to ask, are you sympathetic to incrementalist approaches for things like, you know, people don't want to go full vegan immediately? Do you say, you know, try to eat meat one less day a week or, you know, turn to vegetarianism slowly? Are you fine with those kinds of step down methods? Um, less causing less suffering is better than causing more suffering. Okay, but but the remaining suffering you're causing is still um, wrong. You're still suffering. <laughs> yeah, fair sense. enough. But, but but having said that, right? You know, even vegans aren't perfect because most animal agriculture causes a lot of harm and suffering too. Right. So there is no perfect state that we we're aiming at here. It, everyone's just trying to get better. And I think if the ultimate outcome is to enhance the flourishing and reduce the suffering for all sentient beings you know chipping away at it is as good as aiming for perfection fair enough all right well jamie you've you've survived you've made it this way this far but now we have to come to the lightning round uh for folks who are not familiar i'm going to give you a series of things you're going to tell me are they real or not real you don't get to hedge during it you can uh, vent your spleen a little bit afterwards um but those those are the rules so are you ready uh, just about, yeah. I will. I'm, I'm ready to caveat afterwards. Okay. Let me make sure. Let me prime you. Prime the pump here. Do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay. Great. Let's find out what's real. Uh, is the external world real? Yes. Cool. Colors. No. Okay. Uh, phenomenal consciousness. Yes. Free will. No. Selves. No. Genders? Yes. Mm-hmm. Races? Yes. I'm going to caveat later. <laughs> Species? Uh, yes. Okay. Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge? Yes. God or gods? No. Society? Yes. Numbers? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fictional characters? No. Holes, as in a hole in the ground? <laughs> uh, no. Chairs? Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? Yes. Natural laws? Yes. Beauty? Yes. Causality? Yes. And finally, dharmas? Yes. Okay. You were fairly confident throughout that. You were, I was impressed. You survived. You needed to caveat on races. I'm trying to, well, I want to caveat quite a lot, quite a lot of them actually, but I was just trying to hold the caveats back. Mm hmm. It's good. Admirable self control. I appreciate that. And the main, the main caveat really is, um, there's certain things I see that are real in the external world as, you know, physical artifacts, if you like, in patterns of energy and matter and so on. And those, I just say, yes, they're real. Um, there are other things that I think are real because they're patterns of information in our own minds, you know, and you might put rights or laws or colors or, you know, certain other things in that category. They're things that I don't think are physically distinct from us, but that doesn't mean they're not real. You know, they're real information that's flowing around our minds that flows through society that we might write down on pieces of paper. So those are real, but they're not pretending to be anything other than that. Then there's a group of things in the middle and you might put gods and fictional characters in that where, mm-hmm. you know, the fictional stories are real things, but the events and the characters in them are not real. If that makes Fair sense. Enough. Yeah. So I'm, I've, got, I've sort of got a, you know, real brain real and then, you know, brain real things that are pretending to be real that aren't. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's my caveat. So which one of those things is numbers since you realize you're going to get canceled on that oh, one? I think, yeah, I know. I'm in trouble all over the place. So I would say numbers are a, are a, a brain real thing. right? Now, okay. Right? Brain. <laughs> I think, I think if, if humans didn't exist and if, you know, there was nothing else capable of thinking about the universe, there would be no such thing as number, even though clearly it would be numbers of things. But 
<laughs> You're a filthy sense. nominalist. I understand. Uh, no, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Thank you so much, Jimmy. This has been a lot of fun. This has been a great chat. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, and I, I strongly recommend that folks check out your, your various groups and check you out on Twitter. Thank you. I'd love to hear any feedback, however brutal. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, good luck out there. Thanks, Aaron. You too. Thanks again to all our listeners, and especially to our patrons who make the show possible. I want to give a shout out to two new patrons. One is the T for Two podcast, and another is a top tier $40 a month patron who has chosen to remain anonymous, which means we can cross backed by dark money off our cult bingo card. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And as always, I must thank our top tier patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Volunteer this summer. Learn more at campquest.org. Certainly got your money's worth on that one this week. Uh, Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks to our forever and eternity top patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you are an eccentric billionaire or if you notice just a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. But most importantly, remember... You are the void, and the void is you.